Born out of Boston's public housing system, J.P. Ouyet moved to Los Angeles after graduating film school. He has assisted creatives such as Richard Kelly, Michael Ohoven, Gary Flutter, and James Manos Jr. before being hired to write the horror film Captured and launching his own creative shingle circa 1888. J.P. has since written a true war adaptation, Gaddafi's Point Guard, for a major studio. J.P. is currently producing the feature film Little Brother in New Mexico. Dylan Matlock has been on the physical production side of over 50 film and television projects, including HBO's The Wire, Live Free or Die Hard, and Project X. He worked as an associate producer for the hit comedy central show Review, and writer and producer on the theatrically released horror feature Along Came the Devil. Since producing Mass, Dylan has produced the feature Little Brother Cannot Watch. JP and Dylan produced Mass, which premiered at Sundance in 2021. The film is currently creating Oscar buzz for the 2022 award season. JP Ouellette and Dylan Matlock, welcome to the creative process. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I've just been absorbing your film Mass, which deals with a mass school shooting in such a sensitive and empathetic way. And I kept on thinking of there's this old Native American expression. I think it goes inside of me, there are two dogs. One is mean and evil and the other one is good and they fight each other all the time. And the one I feed the most wins. I think that you really in that film show the two sides and not even not good or evil, but we all have a capacity for extreme violence if we feed that. Uh, just tell us a little bit about the making of the film and why you felt it was important to do. It's a topic that's always on our minds. So it was really important to the writer-director Fran Kranz to explore that after he became a father. All the news of the school shootings almost weekly in our country started affecting him in a different way since he was a parent. And he wanted to dig in and just research what goes on in the aftermath of these events. Usually we just see the sound bites and, and the news and then there's a new one or a new story that politics that takes away from what these families are going through. And these, these people in these towns are just glossed over and looked over. And that's not the case in real life. They live with this trauma forever. Fran really dug deep and explored what that is to live with that for multiple years. Mass takes place six years later and what it's like to forgive the person who did that. Yeah, you started off with the quote is great because it really is about these four parents struggling with that very issue. How do you be empathetic? You obviously you want it, but they all... <laughs> Come, at, come to the table with, with the hope that they could, uh, they could be that way, be more empathetic, you know, f feed that, feed that. But uh, they also come with the battle of, uh, of the walls that they've built up and just kind of the anger that they all have towards these, each other and the, and the situation and that the movie, you know, struggles with that exact issue. And you mentioned the staging of it, which could be a stage play, essentially. I mean, there's there's some small characters that just like bookend it, but it's four people in a room. And that was so fascinating too, because I mean, there were, there's so many different ways you can go about it, as you say, but you're interested in what's behind the scenes and what's not the, the news headline. And what we, I guess what we hope I mean, they all address it like they want to change. Like, could we change this? Why do we have to keep on seeing this? But 
if we want to approach forgiveness and my God, what a masterclass in acting, the amazing performances. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. It was funny. Fred originally had it as a, as a movie, thought about making it a stage play when he talked to Reed Birdie, who they go way back together in theater. And that was kind of, Reed was the first one that, that we brought uh, onto the movie. And so there was that talk about it being a, a theater piece, but then it quickly came back to a movie because the camera work, getting you right into that conversation. And I think why, why it does work so well, it is a conversation that unfolds over time, just in this simple room, no flashbacks, no, no getting out of that room basically for 70 minutes and just letting the characters unfold. And I think the actors did, the performances are so great because one, the actors were, were prepared, but it's also they were able to slowly release information and just live with the conversation as, as it was unfolding. And tell us a little bit about the casting process, just that delicate balance. And if one doesn't fit, it would just set off the whole piece. What you were looking for in terms of that balance? We always luckily had Reed Bernie, as Dylan was just saying, he was attached immediately and I, I always personally thought it was lucky that he was attached to the hardest role to cast of the disconnected father of the school shooter. There's not too many people that would maybe want to play a role like that or get into that mind space. And it was pretty much written for him. Him, him and Fran had known each other forever and he was part of the, the process. And he knew, Fran knew that Reed was, the person for this and once Reed read it uh, he was in so we got extremely lucky to have a Tony award-winning actor in the hardest role to fill right off the bat and the rest was really just the power of the script I keep saying that at the time this was about October 2019 we had the best script in Hollywood at all the agencies going around and we had a great casting director. We had two great casting directors that would push it around to everyone. And everyone was reading the script. Every actor's actor was reading the script. And they were talking about it together and mentioning it. And even, even Jason Isaacs, who eventually signed on who, and is wonderful in the movie, would tell Fran that the script is so amazing, but it will never get made because of the topic. <laughs> But that was our job as as producers is to keep grinding away and to make make it happen. So we spent a few months prepping and location scouting and getting the funding together for such a sensitive topic. And then Martha came on board and then Anne, just all the pieces just kept falling into place. It was just kind of magical, but we had... I always remember what Ann Dowd, we locked her a few weeks before the shoot and she was just like, I don't know how to say no to a script like this. She couldn't even say no if she wanted to. So it was really powerful and it attracted the, the four actors that I can't imagine anyone else in. It just it was just perfect, perfect casting. They were, yeah, they were all first choices. We got, we got so lucky. You don't usually get that lucky, but uh, again, it was all thanks to the script. It's beautifully balanced. And yeah, it doesn't seem like you're ticking off boxes, but the complexity of it, if you go back to the script, the complexity of the performances, but also the complexity of trying to understand 
grief or what is forgiveness? So many questions. What, what do we really want when we want to, when we're talking about healing? Because it seemed like most of the characters, Reed Bernie, he's more, as you say, distant. But we feel like maybe some transformation takes place for him, even in the, within the film, but maybe afterwards. We can, you leave that for our imagination. But it really, it seemed like most of the characters came together, maybe wanting something and discovering something else. And so what does it mean to forgive? Where do we want to be as a society? What is the cause of this violence? To what extent do we enable through our legislation or through those we love by, you know, not noticing enough? So many things. And it was all treated with complexity and nothing was like ticking boxes and simplifying what is very complex and what I think that none of us fully understand. Yeah, you have these characters that at the heart of it, they do want to heal. And that's why they're why they're meeting. They do want to want to do that. But of course, when they get into the room, they have all these other topics on the mind. They don't really know how to go about it. And and as the as they talk to each other, find out more about each other, they're able to kind of slowly let the walls down. It just does kind of bring up all these different little issues and talk about how the events of the day unfolded. But, but, you know, at the end of it, it's just that they were willing to reach out to each other and talk to each other and try to try to hear each other and listen to each other. And to build on Reed's character, such a new unique character. I'm glad we're touching on it a lot. Like I believe the work that everyone's doing in the room to get to that acceptance level of grief because they're trying to accept and forgive and move on. I, I believe Reed's character has done that years ago. You know, maybe because it's he's a colder man and he's was dealing with legal stuff and all this stuff. He was, I think he was able to compartmentalize it and move on a lot quicker than everyone else in that room. But he's needed there to let everyone else go through that final process of grief, uh, accept what happened to their children and forgive each other. It's just that that's what that space is. It's, you know, the whole movie is like all the stages of grief. You can see it go through the whole room where, you know, uh, Jason gets angry and it, it dips down and then everyone's just crushed and depressed. And then finally we get to a place where it's accepted it's accepted by everyone in the room because her grief wasn't even allowed because her son was a school shooter so she wasn't even allowed to have a funeral for her son she wasn't allowed to publicly grieve and to have the other parents just accept that just that is the most important part of the movie is getting to that acceptance point and then forgiveness it was just quite a powerful dance in the script the script actually read like a mystery so like when you're watching the movie you'll have the feeling too it's a little different ex uh, experience and visually but the script read like this mystery you're like what is going on in this room who are these people how are they connected who's who you know like you're constantly doing that and that's in the film too but it's 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 a different experience because you're looking at the faces so you see more and you're, and you're dealing with more emotion. It's true, it's different stages of grief. If you've gone through that stage of grief, 
then there is what might be read as cold to others means that you've actually come to accept it. And I've often found, and you must have, you know, had conversations or known people who've like been through wars or seen their friends and family die in front of them. And often they, they don't talk about it. They're the ones that talk the least, you know, when they've had the most kind of suffering. Yeah. So that's an interesting perspective I had. And now it gives me a, another layer of empathy um, for the uh, Reed Bernie's character. And I love the grace notes. There was no, as I'm trying to recall, because usually a lot of films rely a lot on music and there was just bookend with the music, which mm -hmm. was a nice, the, the kind of a little bit of music because you have this setting, which is in a, I should say, and we're not giving too much away, but it's it's set yeah. in an, uh, a room within a church, but not a religious, too religious of a setting. And then you have the grace note of music at the end um, that just it makes us realize that no matter what we're going through, that we're, we're all looking for a place that we belong. And um, that might be your community and that might be mm -hmm. the church. It might be the school. But if we don't have that, that's when things go wrong in society. Right. And that's, and that's the main meaning of mass, the title. I, I know it has several meetings, but just like the conjugation of people, just like to be together and to be in that group and come together is really what uh, Fran was referring to when picking the title, even though it does have the many meanings, especially within the church and the events that happen and stuff like that. To your point, the film was so powerful that it didn't need music to guide it. You know, a lot of movies, the music tells you what emotion to feel. It's kind of a, almost a crutch that movies lean on nowadays. And to have a film with all this emotion without any music, I think is really powerful and shows the, the power of the writing, of the acting. It just really puts it forefront that there's no other outside devices telling you what to feel. You're feeling what they're saying uh, and you're feeling what's written and what's acted and it's wonderful. And then to have the, the, the choir piece at the end just kind of just give us that relief, you know, what music does, what art does, you know, because that's what the movie represents too, is we're able to have this experience and you feel, you, you feel this release at the end of the movie. It's not, you don't feel, people aren't like, oh, this is a depressing movie. I feel sad at the end. They're like, no, I, I, I feel like the sense of relief. I, I've been able to go through this process. And then the music at the end just really ties it together and lets you just breathe for a moment because you're not able to breathe the whole movie. And you're just able, after, especially after the last scene with the two moms, you're able to just breathe, listen to this beautiful choir, just kind of bring everyone together for a moment. So it's really, I think it's a great end cap. What are your personal feelings? I mean, and also how did they develop through the making of this film? What may be contributing causes and how can we change our behavior or our legislation, whether it's addressing mental health and young people, improving our education system and helping us notice when people are at risk. What are the different ways you look at this situation and how we could do better? I, I, I think what, what, what's great about this movie is it does bring those issues up, but I think the most important part about it is, is having the conversation and, and coming together. And this movie could be read not just about like our like our very real issue with 
gun violence, but also, you know, just overcoming grief and coming together and reaching across to your, the person next to you and saying, hey, we do have this common goal. We, we do want to make a better place for all of us. So I think it, it really starts with, with conversations. Yeah, it's definitely the film itself is a conversation starter. The most important part of this movie coming out is parents reaching out to us. I'm not a parent myself, but I've had parents of victims of school shooters reach out, talk about the powerful, how real this film is, how needed it is. And then separately, I've had parents mention that, wow, this is going to be a teaching tool for parents that have an at-risk son or daughter that's at risk of doing this to see the missing pieces of what Reed, Bernie, and Ann Dowd talk about. Um, I had a parent say, wow, there's going to be other parents that look at that couple and say, my son is following this pattern. I, sh I need to get him help. And that was powerful too, that this could be a, almost a prevention tool that we'll never even know about, that it just, it, this movie may just work its magic just once for one, one mom or dad out there to say, I need to get my son help after watching this movie because I don't want to be in this room six years from now. Personally, I think it should be shown in schools and not just for the parents, but like for the teachers who, you know, more and more parents, because we see that even it's display that are, you know, working all the time. And they can, so, you know, or for other students to feel like, well, you know, let's not bully this kind of person who's different or whatever, because we should have some empathy for their difference. I think it's, it would be great because it, it really allows for reflection and empathy for all involved because it it's a community yeah. and, it, um, and it's very apolitical there's no politics in this movie like we all know the issues we all know everyone's opinions on each side and this movie doesn't get into that it doesn't isolate any audience it brings everyone together to have this one conversation and this one feeling of we have to do something to help prevent this from happening. Look what these people are going through. We can't have this happening every week in our in our country. So I, it's definitely a film that wouldn't offend or fire up anyone with big political beliefs on each side. It's just the feeling and aftermath of an event after. There's no, you know, yeah, sure they touch on it a little bit and they have a, the two dads have a little back and forth during the anger phase of everything, but that's normal. But it doesn't, say that this is this movie or it's that movie it's really for everyone to sit down and watch and connect with one set of the parents or you know just the event as a whole and to just start the conversation i also but i'm not afraid to be a little political i have to say um because somebody said before i did this interview because it's so it's so interesting but they said oh, well don't you know don't put your opinions out there but i have to feel like I'm, I'm not afraid to say, one, I'm against school shootings. Like, I mean, that goes without saying. And I don't want 
our legislation to make that easier for anyone who is potentially unstable or at risk. So, I mean, I don't think it's even controversial. I hope that's not controversial. It's, it's not. And we, we a hundred percent agree with you. You know, there needs to be advanced gun control laws, especially people with mental health issues. We need a better mental health system in this country. We have pretty much nothing. We know, we know the problems. um, And it's, I'm glad you brought it up because we can't ignore them, but for the film and and the experience of the art, we wanted to make sure that everyone could come to the table, literally that table in the movie and and not feel isolated. You know, we didn't wanna have our personal beliefs and political opinions, which they're, I mean, it just seems like common sense, but now they're turned into a whole political opinion uh, from other sides, but, we didn't we didn't want that for the art itself we wanted to just stand alone and and go through the feelings and emotions of these these two parents we uh definitely hope that this has become the teaching tool and that maybe it could lead to some changes i do want to go into maybe in the while to go into you know the other things that normalize violence and uh, and that might be controversial. I don't want to be. I don't. I wouldn't like to limit it. But I know to a certain extent, we know that the brain chemistry of young people, either hormonal changes. I mean, it's a kind of. It's like drugs. You know, you're not yourself. It, at your brain, they've done scans. It's not. Full, it's not formed in the way that we are. Like when we're 21, and we're we're starting to know ourselves, right? And so I, I personally feel not have ever having been into video games, but that certain video games normalize violence and that maybe they you know, could be monitored a little bit more because it's sort of like an enactment. Like it's quite, there's very sophisticated now. So I, I don't know how that might be regulated, but it's, we know that, and they say that our devices, our telephones are addictive and certain things can we just normalize certain things and and that's pervasive throughout society so i it's it's a question that needs to be asked and i think you did it did it very um gently and sensitively but it makes us go home and and think and and think how we might change society and i also just love the this the metaphor of because we've been doing a lot of grieving outside of you know whatever our personal um, connection to a school shooting, you know, and not, maybe not having experienced that. But uh, a lot of people have, you know, not been able to even get together and gather and grieve. You know, what does that look like? I, my father died, you know, and I don't know, I may have lost people during the last two years um, and we couldn't have a funeral. So that's kind of something that we also need to do. It seems timely as a metaphor for this other kind of coming together and grieving that a lot of us might not have been able to have. Yeah, I'm very sorry to, to hear about your father. We lost my grandparent um, at the same time. And likewise, we're not able to to meet together. It was like the, the start of the pandemic. And we actually shot this uh, before the pandemic, not knowing what would happen. You know, like we, we shot it, like we said, in, in, in 2019. I think with what we're all going through now, it's it's been almost, I guess, almost two years now that we've had this weird extended, not being able to come together and and wanting that 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 so much, that connection so much. It does speak to that. It speaks to the human nature of, of just wanting 
to 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 share because we're very social creatures. Just wanting to 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 share in our in our love, share share in our grief, and yeah. But we we've also in in the last two years is we were able to share a collective trauma. This quarantine and pandemic, we were able to share and face a collective trauma and learn how to deal with it because it was an event that was affecting every single person on the planet for a long period of time that we all kind of mentally clicked together. And the tools we have now are actually going to help issues like gun violence and school shootings and things of this nature because we know how to deal with trauma. We just dealt with it for two years together, a collective trauma. So now when an event like this happens, it's more sensitive to us and we know how to deal with it more. We know how to face it. We know how to, to speak up. You know, there's people that the past two years have just learned how to speak up and share their feelings, get a therapist, um, you know, like little thing, get on the medication they've always needed for decades. You know, I have friends and family that have all just experienced this trauma for two years of not being together and of having the stress of a, a pandemic and uh, the financial hits. And now it, it gave us the tools to deal with every type of trauma, every type of negative event and how to face it head on. And I think with the gun violence problem and school shootings in general, um, I think we're ready to face it head on and have the tools to do it now. Um, we've always had them, but now we really can can enact them and know how to come together uh, socially and make yeah. things happen. It's just a collective trauma. In your mind, the pandemic the past two years is the same as seeing a school shooting, another one in your country. You have that same that same dread and that same connection to everyone that's all going through the same feeling but now we're, we're able to kind of face it and I think have the accept the challenge to change things when watching mass I was struck by the quiet the film opens with a red brick church probably nestled in a suburb of some midwestern town and it's a quiet morning before Judy's white car pulls into the parking lot, the only sounds are faint bird chirps and leaves swaying in the breeze. This sense of silence and solitude pervades the film. A red ribbon tied to a barbed wire fence sways eerily where the parents stare at each other hesitantly, each individual holding six years of anger, fear, hate, and sadness. There is no music throughout the film. And these long, drawn-out sequences of quiet are juxtaposed with a shriek or a wince, emphasizing pure, visceral emotion. This silence aids and illustrates the unspeakable nature of tragedy. And the film's quiet is complemented by its simplicity. There is one room in the basement of the church, and one lightweight plastic folding table in the center of the room, and four chairs. It's almost like we are sitting in the room with the parents. And this simplicity forces us to consider each character more thoughtfully. Their relationship with their child, their relationship with their spouse, and their individual journey with grief. 
Linda, the mother of the shooter, uneasily gifts the other mother, Gail, with a bouquet of flowers. When the parents start conversing, words are exchanged sparingly. The quiet persists, and it is both uncomfortable and awkward. As our conversation continues, we are forced to parse through the mystery surrounding the shooting, the buildup, the event, and the aftermath. The parents try to rationalize the unexplainable. When they fail, the quiet creeps in, and there is this sense of tension and anticipation. It's quiet until there's an eruption of emotion, and then the quiet returns. Mass forces us to feel uncomfortable in the silence, to sit with the emotions we avoid and suppress. There is no other option, no music or conversation that can take us away from the intense and honest exchange among the parents. At the end of the film, the quiet feels solemn and peaceful, but there is no final relief. The film understands that this is impossible because grief and coping with trauma is a lifelong process driven by a commitment to forgiveness and acceptance. We learn that the silence does not end, it evolves. That is why I loved Mass. It felt real. The unspoken words, the awkward social cues, the built-up anger, the exhaustion, and the unrelenting attempt to love someone despite the pain they've caused others. Mass is not really a film about school shootings. It's a film about the human capacity to forgive others for your own sake, to continue living despite unalterable tragedies, and to love, remember, and let go of those who cannot live. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, it was just interesting that just thought occurred to me. My, my mom's a therapist, and I just remember when I was younger, it was kind of like everyone's like had this stigma towards, towards therapy, and I feel like now everyone kind of like realized just how important it is, how important of a tool it is to, to go out and get help. Um, I think it's changed in our culture just the last uh, decade or two of this, you know, everything we're going through, everyone does kind of realize that, that we all do need help and to, to seek it out. Yeah. And I like the, the outlook that these are tools. I'm, I'm sorry that we had we always sorry that we have to go through grief to to get stronger as you say make us more resilient but they're tools and that was uh, beautifully voiced by um martha plimpton's character when she said she wants so much for it for it to have meant something the life of her son the loss of her son to change mm -hmm. so um if we can see that these are tools that we can apply to future crises, because we think about that as well here, we have an environmental podcast and, and we have to think about, you know, how we're going to be prepared for that. Um, and what we're already seeing the effects of that. Um, and not to, I don't like to change, you know, the subject, but that's, that's another pandemic, you know, coming our way. Um, we see it now. And so your films are touching upon this very important um, issues in society. Um, and I know it, it hasn't yet been released, but uh, your uh, forthcoming film with uh, J.K. Uh, Simmons in a starring role is Little Brother. Tell us about that and what drew you to the subject. We were just talking, uh, talking about... Um mental health and just how important it is. Uh, movie Little Brother is about uh, a guy who gets enlisted by his family basically to pick up his brother and bring him back home after he has attempted suicide. And so they go on this, on this trip together, they're estranged, they've kind of been 
been driven apart by by the trauma and they don't they don't know how to heal yet and they they are they both have their walls up and and through this trip that they're that they go on together they they start to start to come to terms with 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 just how hard it is and how it's always an ongoing battle uh to, to deal with mental health yeah and what drives us to stories like that you know like little brother and mass is that there's this just this theme behind them um you know it's just like as filmmakers we read scripts nearly every day and unless there's like a big life affirming or changing theme to make this piece of art to make this film and share with the world it's like do we want to spend time years you know of our life you know making something like this and but the answer with mass and little brother is yes because it has a social message it does offer change to the audience that experiences it um you know with little brother we hope that you know young men watch it and get to that acceptance point of maybe i do need help maybe i do need therapy um you know it's about generational ignorance of mental health and they get into that and addiction and different issues and going on that journey with them on this road trip after an event like an attempted suicide just you have no choice but to ask yourself to look inward and you know ask yourself do do i need help does someone i know need help do i have to stop stop ignoring what's going on and that's the power in that film uh, little brother and it was actually inspired by the writer director's friend who uh, committed suicide and that one of his best friends and he used it as a form of therapy his writing that script was his form of therapy and making that movie was um, his his love letter and his just his I don't know, just his story to share with everyone so they don't have to go through that, that they can get their own help. And um, it's just an interesting tool. We have this storytelling tool, all of us. You know, it's what's made us human. It's what made us draw pictures on walls and tell stories. And um, we just want to teach each other something. We just want that person to change for the better just a little bit. And, and that's what we do as artists. And it's just, um, it's just a very special thing that we get to do. Um, the importance of a movie like Mass or Little Brother, that's why they elevate. That's why you, you know of Mass and the, of course, the, all the accolades and the critical acclaim and stuff like that, because this movie has elevated itself because of the story, because of the social commentary that it provides and the change that it's given the audience. That's why uh, you're, you're hearing of it today or you've seen the movie already. Um, so it's just a, it's just a special, um, special place to be in finding these stories and bringing them to life.
And it's interesting because it seems like what unites um, those films is kind of the common theme or how can we all be better? You know, I was just having a conversation with um, a Nigerian uh, photographer today and we were discussing, you know, she was photographing farmers and, you know, we have these value judgments and, and she, but she was very careful about the images she puts out. And because uh, there's an, kind of image that you expect of people or in Africa or whatever, or poverty or whatever. And she says, well, you have to understand that that person, to them, they're like millionaires, but they don't put their money in a bank or whatever. And they don't have all these amenities. But, it, you know, we, we have to ask ourselves, what is wealth? What is real wealth? What is happiness? But they see they have a whole huge community and they see that the idea of not seeing their child or working themselves to death and not having a family sense of unity would be poverty to them so these kind of films make us question that how can we be better how can we be more connected you know what how can we make society better and, and happier and what do we value most thank, thank you that yeah that that's very very well said and so for you what makes what makes happiness for you and what you know what what, what gives meaning to your life I should say it's funny that you're catching me right now. I'm actually visiting my brother and uh, his wife and my niece in Seattle right now. So it's, I've had a whole week of getting to spend time with family. And I've never been to uh, Seattle before. And we've been walking around, exploring nature. We talked a little bit about the importance of nature for everyone to see generational. And uh, that's been really exciting. That's been really fun. And uh, I think what draw drew me to the to the art world is that connection with people is that being able as we were talking about to kind of reach out together and, and enjoy movies enjoy music I love going to see live music all the time I love going dancing and I think that because that is all part of the being a community together getting, getting to share those moments yeah especially after you know the two years of separation we've had I just love getting together with close friends and usually there's a lot of cooking and eating involved. <laughs> that's that's when I'm at my happiest, when I'm when I'm cooking a huge meal or grilling for a bunch of friends and we're just hanging out and catching up. And um, yeah, I, I just love this, the simple little things like that. I have uh, two, two nieces and a nephew that are amazing as well. I try to see them as much as possible even though two of them are on the East Coast. I'm trying to get out there in a few weeks just to recharge the batteries with family and friends out there. Um, this, it's really the little things that are, are make you truly happy. It's like we all have these crazy goals and all these you know financial plans and all this stuff. And it's just the tiny little stuff like cooking for friends or hanging out with my niece or nephew is uh, usually you know, the best, best time of the week. Um, and then personally, just my art form as a storyteller, I just, I love the writing process. So anytime I can have my, my phone off for a couple hours and be writing something original or helping uh, a writer we're working with rewrite something of theirs and just really get in the story and just disappear into that other world for a few hours. I, that's, that's where I'm happy. I'm we actually, we actually met, uh, met because we wanted to, you know, we, we met each other on set. But we also like writing together. So that's like kind of like the fun thing that kind of 
draws it's being a storyteller and i think uh with film you have so it's such a collaborative process i think that a lot of people forget just how many people go into making a film how much input is put in by by everyone and so that's i think the the real fun of the of the art form is is the community mm -hmm. And um, JP, you're also, I think you're a bit autodidactic. You grew up in the B Boston housing system and just tell, or maybe you're both autodidactic. Just tell us, you know, a, a bit of that process how, and how you carved out a space for yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you kind of just, yeah, I grew up in the, the public housing system in Boston. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a different upbringing. You know, it's, it's survival mode. And you just have to work as hard and as creative as possible just to survive day to day, just to get, you know, sometimes I had to be creative and convince a friend's parents to feed, you know, me and my little brother or something for the evening because my mom was on a double shift somewhere, you know, you get into this mode and it kind of made me creative too. Um, I was the class clown. I had, you know, I, I would rather make someone laugh and have a, a group of friends and have any enemies because I was in a, a tough area. So I just, I don't know, it was just, uh, it's a very, yeah, unique upbringing and it teaches you just to have this drive and this creativity just to get out of there, you know? So it's like, you try to get to a college and then you try to get to the next step and figure out what you love and what you want to do. And you're constantly like, you know, just grinding and, and working harder than everyone else. And just, just trying to get, out of there um and then it happens you know that that moment happens where you're just kind of out in in this new world and you're working and self-sustaining and then like we're talking about mental health and then that's where you know you have to kind of face the trauma of that upbringing too uh you know it's now with like in therapy, one of the things my therapist says, we're talking about mental health today, so we can get into it, is I'm out of that world. Now I don't need to survive, I need to thrive. So it's like, you have to change your mindset and you need, you know, professionals and, and people around you to help with that process. So now it's, I need to not, think that I have to survive every moment. I have to thrive in what I have and enjoy the moments and tell these stories. You know, Dylan and I, we always get into our own heads and we're like, oh, we don't have this movie. We can't get that movie funded. We, we don't have the rights to that script anymore. Like we always, you know, it's easy to focus on that, but we have, you know, these two amazing movies, one we're filming right now, Little Brother is about to go to the film festival. And we just have to enjoy those moments and thrive on what we have it's been a wild path from um you know you know the projects to hollywood but um yeah and um there was a a period of becoming sober during that too so it's like you just face those traumas and i'm about seven years sober now and um you know you just kind of have to just keep grinding and keep facing your fears and just if you don't want to be in a place, you got to fight to get out. I mean, that's just how I've always been. And you must, um, and Dylan, I think you want to say something there, but I would just to say, you must have a lot of reflections uh, then also on 
like, well, you must have had some great teachers along the way, how we could also make our educational models better, you know, like, you made opportunities for yourself, but you know, I, there, there's a lot of things that we can do that way as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the teachers we've had along the way, like, speaking of like persistence, there's teachers that just would never give up on me. Um, especially I, I had a, a, a teacher in high school who had me do my first creative writing class. When I was about 16, I was this tough kid. I was not living in the projects at the time. Luckily, I was, we moved, we were able to move and be in a, like a better school area. And I was playing football, but I was still like, you know, I was still like the, the tough guy. I was captain of the football team, all this stuff. And, you know, and I had this creative writing teacher saying, no, you have to do this. You know, you're the, you're also the class clown and uh, you're able to convince anyone of anything and stuff like that. You have to put this into stories, into words. And I was like, no, what are you talking about? You know, I was just like, and he wouldn't give up until I signed up for his elective. It took him, I think a year and a half before I signed up for this half year creative writing elective. And it changed my life, literally. Um, he just saw something in me and he didn't give up. And I, I like that persistence in teaching. I think that's what's needed. That's what I see in the best teachers. It's like they have this persistence. They won't give up. Um, even in when I was living in the projects and it was my second year there, a teacher would buy my supplies for me and like brought me out to pizza one day just to make sure everything was okay. Like, like that was amazing looking back on that, you know, like she was just checking on, you know, my life at home and asked about my, my parents' divorce and being living in this new area and being in the project. And she just went out of her way and just like stuff like that. You never forget um, just a, just a meal, a conversation, and then buying my notebooks and pencils and stuff for me out of her own pocket I'm sure just like teachers still do now but it's just that's the power in education and that's kind of what I do in my films now I think you know I just kind of they kind of just pay it forward a little and maybe teach something to someone or give them escape for two hours that's also an important part of what I do and an important thing I love from film because growing up in that area a lot of times movies were my babysitter so that's where my love of movies came from is like I didn't want to go outside. So I just popped on a new movie and, and watched it 10 times in a row with my little brother. And we just stayed safe in the house and uh, had this nice escape. So I just offer that now for a living. Uh, it's kind of, kind of unique. So. Yeah. I love that. My, yeah. My mom uh, had a love for movies and, and kind of brought that over to me. And me and my, my brother and sister would always kind of like talk and movie quotes and that sort of thing and, and fun and, um, yeah, some of my teachers were amazing. I had a teacher, I think was maybe third or fourth grade where I wrote my own kind of like movie script and I wanted to, to like, she was like, you need to do it in front of the class. So I ended up like doing, doing my, like my, my little movie script in front of the class and got a lot of laughs. And that was like really exciting for a young kid. And, uh, I just remember one of my, another big one was it's actually in college, but it was uh, philosophy in film and TV, and it just really went in, in depth and like how do these stories, what what kind of like um, 
you know, what, what can they teach us and what can we get out of, get out of them? How can we dig a little bit deeper past the surface? And so that's what I really, really loved because I loved them my whole life, but being able to, to go in deeper really kind of, you know, helped me in my journey in, in wanting to create. Um, uh, yes, T teachers are wonderful. And those ones I'm so, I always love to hear like the good stories because I feel like we don't honor teachers enough. And I always remember that line, um, you know, John Steinbeck said it, that he believes that, you know, all, artists are teachers and they may even be, you know, one of the greatest kind of teacher because mm -hmm. their medium is the human mind and spirit. And um, yeah, sure. they are, you know, and it's, and sometimes they sacrifice part of their own art to teach too. So that's a, that, that's a kind of not a sacrifice, but a, a giving of themselves. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I've been so honored to, to meet teachers in many ways. And some people who don't call themselves teachers, I, I sense that you're yourself teachers it, within your artistic community and probably mentoring at young people mm -hmm. coming up too. So uh, we appreciate that. And I guess, you know, and just in closing, uh, you know, we're thinking a lot about the future and, and I know your films are, you know, about, you know, how we, what kind of world are we leaving the next generation? You know, what are the importance of the art? Um, you know, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Uh, that's a big thing. Well, like I said, I'm, I'm with my uh, with my family right now, so it's been exciting. My my niece is is six years old, and so just going on these going on these on these trips with her, we saw we saw a bald eagle. I don't think I've seen a bald eagle in my life, and we saw a bald bald eagle yesterday in the wild. And I know we were, we were talking about climate and just hoping that we do leave that stuff for, for future generations. So they do have the joy that we've all been lucky enough to have in, in, in seeing nature. And then, yeah, story, storytelling. It's, it's funny. My, my niece has been sharing her favorite movies with me. She's like, you have to see <laughs> this movie you, about talking dogs in the snow. And I'm like, perfect. Let's, let's do that. <laughs> so uh, that's been really fun. And she also, she's been, been singing and, uh, yeah, telling her own stories, telling her own jokes. And that's kind of been fun. So I hope, yeah, future generations kind of keep that that spirit alive, the storytelling spirit and sharing with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I hope the next generation takes is just to absorb everything from our generation and our parents' generation. All the, There's a lot of living generations right now. Uh, we're, we're the longevity of people and the young families. It's, it's amazing. I had five generations in my family alive at one point in my life. And it was just the most amazing thing I've ever been a part of. And just be accepting of learning from the other generations and also knowing what they did wrong too. <laughs> uh, we're learning a lot of that lately, you know, just like systematic problems and, and other things of that nature of wait, they didn't have that right. Even though that's a tradition, that's, that's not right for everyone continuing. Let's adjust this together and teach the next generation the, the, the new and this correct way of, of living and preserving and, and teaching each other and just being just more connected. Um, and yeah, that's what I, I hope they get out of it. Even my 
niece and nephews and my younger brothers, um, even though the younger brothers are the same generation, they look at the work I did and the work I put in, they're just like, wow, I can't believe you do that. You know, it's like, it just inspires other people to do. Um, my, my nephew's 13 now and he's making his own videos and Minecraft storylines and sets. And he's just way ahead of me when I was his age. So it's like, uh, it's just amazing to, to see that growth and just what you inspire. And I also think people need to realize that, you know, in a way they're a role model, if you like it or not, even if you're just, you, you're not, you don't think you're special, you're working some small job and you don't have too many friends and family. There's someone in your world that looks up to you and you got to identify that and accept that. You got to be like, oh, wow, this person at work really looks up to, to me, even though we're in this small company in this small town, this person's looking up to me and you have to accept that and, and embrace that and help that person with whatever they need. And so they help and keep it just going down the line. Um, I think it's just, yeah, very, very special, you know, passing our, our stories and our knowledge down. So great question. That's actually our, our, one of our missions here. So it's one generation inspiring another. So I, oh, uh, you know, I that resonates with me as someone who grew up in a multi-generational family. <laughs> and, and I really uh, love that. And your films definitely do that as well. So thank you, Dylan Matlock and JP Ouellette for your films, which thank teach you. us compassion and for sharing stories that help us reflect on the black and the white and gray areas and examine society as it is and how it might be. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer and Digital Media Coordinator is Phoebe Rouse. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.